for the week of January 24th, 2014. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome to the show. Stephen Lacey here, senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. And assembled around our virtual table is the rest of the wonky gang. We've got Catherine Hamilton here in D.C. as well. She's the founder of the clean tech public policy consulting firm, 38 North Solutions. What is cooking in the titillating world of Washington politics this week, Catherine? Um, well, nothing is cooking outside because it is so cold. And I have a coat that is legitimately made of bubble wrap. <laughs> And in New York City is the third leg of our stool, Jigger Shaw. He's an energy futurist, investor, and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. How are you, sir? Doing well, but like Catherine, I'm freezing my butt off here in New York City. It's so cold that even with all of my layers, you know, any exposed skin starts to actually start to get approaching to frostbite. Well, hold on to your hats this week, and in Jigger's case, your gloves, uh, because our first topic this week is going to rival our episode on utility commissioners. Yes, it's everyone's favorite subject, tax reform. Our first segment is going to focus on the broad implications of proposed changes to the energy tax code, including perhaps one of Jigger's top stories of last year, new financing structures. Then we will dig into the Obama administration's latest strategy for promoting domestic manufacturing, clusters. And in the third segment, we'll talk about some very strong and candid words from recently retired California Utility Commissioner Mark Farron. And of course, at the end of the show, we will tell you something you may not know. Here we go. Ben Franklin once said, In this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. The taxes part is certainly true for the clean energy industry and the energy industry broadly, which has tried with varying degrees of success to limit its exposure to taxes with tax breaks. So with the wind industry's production tax credit gone and a step down of the solar industry's investment tax credit looming, the lobbying is heating up on Capitol Hill. At the same time, lawmakers are starting to debate tax reform that could create technology-neutral incentives for the industry. So this is major stuff here. Before we hear from the gang on this, I want to turn to Tim Kemper of the tax advisory firm Cone Resnick. I talked with Kemper this week and asked him what he thinks the big tax story for 2014 is. I'd say broadly it is tax reform because as everybody says, if you're not at the table, you're 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 serving the meal, <laughs> and you don't certainly want to be in that position. Um, and I'd say tax reform is the place to broadly put the effort because you know it, it appears there's enough momentum both both Republican and Democrat to move tax reform. And I think a, a lot of people believe the system is too complicated and it's not a it's not efficient system and we spend a lot of dollars and, and, and don't get the benefit out of our tax system. Um and then we're anti competitive across the world and you know capital, you know, freely, you know, moves about the world. And if we continue to not have an efficient tax system, then capital will not necessarily continue to be attracted here at the levels that we have. So I think I think a lot of people are in agreement that there has to be tax reform. And I think clearly the industry needs to be at the forefront of that discussion and what it, that means for renewables. As we briefly discussed on the show a while back, Senator Max Baucus, a Democrat from Montana, recently released a proposal that would get rid of the 40 or so tax credits in place for energy and replace them with two broad technology-neutral tax credits that would get phased out based on greenhouse gas emission reductions. I asked Kemper what he thought of Bacchus's ideas. You know, <laughs> um, 
you know, I, as I talked to some of the writers of the proposal, I do know some of his uh, staff and some of his tax writers, and I did have some conversations with them. As I said, you know, that was a very nice first proposal. Um, hopefully that is not going to be the final form, um, you know, because clearly for renewable energy, I, I think it does it does take a significant hit as a result of the proposal. We're very happy for some of the provisions in there. You know, they did permanently, theoretically permanently extend ITC and PTC with some some version of ramp down uh, when we hurt when we hit certain targets. Um, you know, when you combine it with the depre- some of the depreciation proposals going to more of a pooling of a depreciation, which would have a significant impact on the maker's depreciation, I think that hurts. And then in combination, do you lose um, the ability to include battery storage, which I think when you look fundamentally going out, um, that's going to be a very important part of renewable energy is to include battery storage. And it's not clear right now whether that would be continuing to be included as part of ITC basis. Um, and I also think that, you know, that, that the loss um, of it appears as though that we're losing the benefit of just a 50% reduction of the ITC in basis. So when you take into account, um, you know, all the, the provisions and what impact it has, you know, I, I think you're going to see potentially a 30 to 40% um, impact on, on what it would take in PPA pricing um, to get the investment community to continue to invest. There are big questions about how politically viable the plan really is. It's not certain whether the Senate will actually pick it up, especially with Baucus on his way out. But the conversation has started, and Kemper says it's important that the industry be proactive now because there will inevitably be a big compromise on the table. Um, I think everybody knows that if we go through tax reform, um, everybody's going to have to give a little, but what does that mean? Um, And, you know, I think that's where the debate you know, is basically centered in what does that give look like? Um, and, you know, are we going to come out the other side, you know, pristine the way we went in? And I, I don't think anybody believes that's the case under a tax reform, but we certainly need to be, you know, in a place that makes the industry, you know, workable. So even if tax reform doesn't happen in 2014, it's clear the industry is now in the midst of a new conversation around federal incentives, especially since the vast majority of renewable energy promotion is done through the tax code in this country. And that is why the gang is having this conversation today. So, Catherine, let's really briefly remind our listeners what is on the table uh, proposed by Bacchus. And then more importantly, what's your sense of how the industry is gearing up to negotiate this now that it's had a chance to chew on this over the last month or so? Well, ironically, about 10 minutes after Bacchus's proposal came out, he announced that, you know, the the word came out that he would be nominated um, to be the ambassador to China. Yeah, that was kind of a bizarre twist to the story. Yeah. So then everybody said, well, okay, so that's not really going to happen then, is it? Um, Ron Wyden will be stepping up as chair of uh, Senate Finance. Paul Ryan will be stepping up to be chair of House Ways and Means of the you know, Romney Ryan campaign, but Paul Ryan is very um, well regarded in the House as someone who's very wonky on taxes and on budget issues, and he's listened to. Um, Honestly, the first thing on the table has got to be extenders. Um, I don't even know how we can focus 
on anything that looks like tax reform until we deal with what just expired. At the end of 2013, 55 tax provisions expired, including an R&D tax credit, bonus depreciation, the production tax credit for wind, 179D, which helps um, energy efficiency in buildings. Um, now, they do have to deal with this at some point and make them retroactive to 2013. Now, that doesn't mean they'll all get extended, and I have some real concerns about the production tax credit for wind. But what it means is that there is going to be some type of an extenders package. And in order to do anything on taxes, you have to have a vehicle, a tax vehicle, and an extenders package would be that. So you could see an extenders package that would have new or slightly altered provisions. And a couple of examples would be um, there's been a bill introduced in the Senate by Toomey and Menendez that would allow pre-revenue companies to take advantage of the R&D tax credit. That would bring in a lot of startups in the clean tech space into that, you know, into that provision. Uh, something like that, a tweak could be added in an extenders package to tweak the R&D tax credit and make it more effective. Or another one could be master limited partnerships that would allow for renewables and energy storage and energy efficiency participate. Um, interestingly, on that side, the oil and gas guys are getting behind that because they don't want to lose their existing provision. So something like that could be put in. Um, the issue now is timing on that, and I'm happy to go into what that might look like. Well, the wind industry was a little bit more supportive of Bacchus's plan when it first came out, simply because it would extend the PTC through 2016 and then come up with this new credit afterward, this technology credit. Uh, solar has its tax credit through 2016, and then it has a phase down afterward. So it's you know, m more concerned about the impact there. Jigger, what is your sense for how the solar industry is approaching this? I mean, it sounds like SIA is trying to get a seat at the table here, but they're really more focused on the ITC itself. Have you heard any real reactions from people in the business community in solar? No, not really. I think solar likes the fact that they're extended through 2016 and they're hoping that all of this dysfunction in the in the ranks will will subside by then. But I think the other thing that you have to consider with solar is they're dealing with this um, this sort of Chinese tariff case at the same time. And yeah, Ron Wyden, right. you know, is the state where Solar World's factory is. And so they're very concerned about pissing off Ron Wyden by going too aggressive on the tariff case, et cetera. So it, I, you know, it's the solar industry is trying to figure out exactly where it can step without, you know, stepping in. You know what? Yes, yes, absolutely. And what I was going to say about the investment tax credit is in 2016, while the solar provision goes down, the solar provision goes down to 10 percent, um, and is and is. Per considered permanent, there are some technologies like distributed wind and offshore wind that just fall off the map after 2016. So, so there are other industries that are impacted by the investment tax credit as well. So what about uh, Kemper's comments on getting a seat at the table here? I mean, do, you, uh, do either of you feel comfortable that the industry is sort of being proactive on tax reform? Because it sounds like it's inevitable in the next couple of years uh, you know, we could see some action this year, but the conversation has started. Do you get the sense that the industry is being proactive on this? I think one thing they're going to have to do is change the conversation because right now there is a visceral reaction to renewables on the part of the Republican Party and that it shouldn't be that way, but it is in large extent and that has got to change or else, you know, they'll just be shut down on the House side. And if we and if the Senate flips, you know, then they're really going to have trouble in the Senate, too. 
the one thing I would say though is that I agree that the wind and solar guys don't spend the thirty million dollars a year on you know advertising campaigns and all the things necessary to really like shape public opinion. But when push comes to shove, they usually get their way on these things. I mean, I think of the wind production tax credit has sort of come to the end of its sort of ability to live under the radar screen. And my sense is, is the wind guys are going to have to give something like they're going to have to prove to people that they're actually going to do a phase down or something or else they're not going to get their extension. Hey, Jigger, any worries from you on how either tax reform or the looming ITC expiration will impact some of the really interesting activity we've seen in these yield co's? You talked about Energy's, NRG's yield co and Sun Edison's yield co in a, a podcast a couple episodes ago, um, and, and we're starting to see some activity in REITs. Uh, of course, Solar City securitization is a big story, and we'll probably see more of that. What is your sense for the intersection between the activity we're seeing there and some of the activity that we're seeing in uh, tax reform and tax expirations? Well, I mean, this is what I've been saying for a while is that the dirty little secret is the people that are actually on the inside of securitization want to see the 30% tax credit expire. They hate it. Because the problem with it is it comes with all sorts of baggage around, well, you got to find Google or Kilowatt Financial or all these other folks who are going to take the tax credit. It becomes very complicated. Most of these guys who are on the inside um, at Bank of America or Citibank or other places are not actually that um, versed in tax equity. And so most of those folks actually really like the fact that they can go back to their traditional pension fund clients, um, you know, uh, Asian money, uh, Saudi Arabian money, etc., and actually figure out how to do this without the tax credits. And so that's why I'm saying that, like, I get the fact that everyone's used to the tax credits finally, but I think that you're seeing that the smart money in the space is starting to realize that the tax credits are actually holding back financial innovation and it is going to you know be something that we we'll have to deal with um, you know sort of this fight within the industry so then do you think that CIA's focus on the ITC is wrong no look this is politics so within the beltway CIA is going to push as hard as they can to get an extension of the ITC and at the 11th hour they're going to hopefully trade that for including solar and MLPs or including solar and REITs or other legislation that's pending that could be sort of a give to the solar industry because the general audience um, you know, like our podcast is listened to by, you know, several thousand people in the renewable energy industry. But most of the you know consumers in the United States don't really understand the politics of this stuff. All right. Well, I brought this topic up because I, I am really interested in how this conversation is evolving. And I'm wondering, Catherine, are we going to be having the same conversation at this time next year? Or are we going to see some fundamental changes? That may be too short a timeline. Um I, I don't know. I think there there may be a shift toward a technology-neutral innovation tax credit, which says – which isn't just for – for for cost-effective energy technology that have proven themselves, that are able to get other kind of good financial um, schemes, but for for real innovation that has a way to fund things that are new and different and get them through the valley of death and then phase out over time, but that are technology neutral. I think we're going to start seeing some different kind of proposals like that that are really going to start moving, you know, U.S. innovation. All right. Well, let's move on. Along with tax subsidies, another topic hotly debated in the clean energy industry is the viability of U.S. manufacturing. 
With a few exceptions, the Obama administration's first push in cleantech manufacturing didn't go all that well. But undaunted by the range of bankruptcies in the last push, the administration is back at it, this time with a different strategy, manufacturing clusters. Working with five different agencies, the White House has pulled together $200 million to support regional hubs. The president was in North Carolina last week to unveil the first hub, which will bring together 18 companies, seven universities, and the National Renewable Energy Lab to work on commercializing wide band gap semiconductors. Now, these are non-silicon-based semiconductors that can potentially reduce power conversion losses by around 90%, and that can make all kinds of products smaller and more efficient. There are two strategies here. One is to bring together existing resources to support manufacturing rather than support individual companies without a mature market for their product. And the other is to promote clean energy and efficiency as a benefit to making products like these wideband gap semiconductors rather than as the explicit goal itself. So will this new approach prove effective? Jigger, um, any thoughts on the viability of the, the cluster theory generally? Um, what do you think of the president's approach? I think it's very smart. It's been it's something I've lobbied very hard for for a long time. Um, this approach comes from Semitech, right, which is the the um, industry sort of government partnership that came together during the Reagan administration to save our semiconductor jobs here in the U.S. Because of the Semitech effort, applied materials and all these major equipment manufacturers are still in the United States, and what they figured out how to do is to use robots and use other automation to counteract low-cost wages in Taiwan or China or other places. And so they're basically bringing that hub. They've been talking about this and actually announced this program back in 2012. They just brought a lot more press to it this time around. Um, but the thing that's disappointing to me is that even though Department of Energy has this technically as a solution for solar manufacturing in the United States, it basically is going nowhere on the clean energy space. And so, um, you know, that's where I'm disappointed is they're not really doing this for clean energy. They're doing this for power electronics and semiconductors. Catherine, what's your take on the uh, announcement? I think it's great. I'm bullish on North Carolina State. Um, there are just so many companies down in that research triangle, research organizations. And then, of course, they brought in a lot of universities and labs from all over the country, including NREL. Um and it seems that they've really taken this public-private partnership. North Carolina beat out New York and New Mexico, which potentially are very high political profile states uh, for this. And North Carolina State has this Freedom System Center. I mean, they do great work down there. They've got all these companies like ABB, who is you know one of those stealth investors in a ton of different kinds of clean energy companies. So... I think it's great. Um, what's what will be interesting to see is these other two institutes are um, – that was the DOE Institute. There are two other ones that um, the president's been able to do within executive authority. All of the others, he wants to have between 15 and 45 more hubs over the next 10 years. Um, he'll have to get more congressional authorization to do. But the DOD ones uh, are the next two. One's on digital manufacturing and design and the other's on lightweight materials. Um, you know, there are some really top-notch – schools and labs coming together, um, you know, the finalists, and, and they're coming together with not just defense companies, but a non-defense companies that are, you know, they're going to bring a lot of brain power and understanding about how to get things into market and to manufacture. So there's a sort of an Illinois contingency, uh, a Georgia, Alabama contingent, and a 
and a uh, California one. And then on the lightweight medals, Iowa State, Michigan, and um, Mississippi and Louisiana. There, there are a bunch of different proposals out there. I think they're down to three now that they have to choose from. I don't think he's going to announce until after the State of the Union uh, so that it won't look too political. But um, I think it's a great idea. Hmm. Well, when you look yeah. at, at why the president is focusing on, on the, these technologies, I think he's attempting to support products that have a clear path to market. So these wideband gap semiconductors can be used to make consumer electronics smaller, to make um, high efficiency motors better, you know, variable speed drives. There are a lot of products that these can be directly integrated into uh, with a huge mar- existing market. And the, the issue is packaging them better um, and figuring out better manufacturing processes. When you look at at solar specifically, Jigger, the market is growing substantially, but we still don't have the same sort of captive market for large-scale solar manufacturing to be done in this country. And if you look at, say, Toledo, Ohio, which attempted to set up this solar hub through the University of Toledo, you know, it spawned a big company like First Solar, but it also um, created a lot of problems with this company, Willard & Kelsley, another CADTEL producer. It was accused of mishandling funds and couldn't set up a manufacturing facility. Uh, Buckeye Silicon uh, did the same. You know, they, uh, the Spanish company Isophoton was granted $31 million, and its plans for the plant fell through uh, due to demand issues. So I, I think that I see solar promotion as different from some of these other technologies that do have a different path to market currently. Yeah, I agree. We need more help, but that's the whole point, right? I mean, is that is it we should be manufacturing solar in the US? I believe very strongly that we are going to exceed 10,000 megawatts um, in 2016. And I think Green Tech Media's uh, analysis is roughly the same as mine. And that means that we absolutely could build 3,000 megawatts of crystalline solar manufacturing um, in the United States. I just think that the challenge is, is that we need a better understanding of how the ecosystem comes together. And we do have a lot of challenges on the manufacturing side in the United States. I mean, look at Extreme Power. They just filed for bankruptcy today. And Extreme Power, you know, was one of the companies that, you know, the DOE and others tried to support a battery manufacturing facility for using Horizon batteries. Um, And that's a sad story because Extreme is a great battery company. So, um, look, I get the fact that this is hard, but if the United States wants to be competitive in the next generation of technologies, which will be the largest wealth creation opportunities on the planet, then we got to put our thinking caps on and work a little harder. Yeah, so I actually think this is a huge opportunity, though, because these are only the first three. So, and I don't think they're as simple, you know, if you say, is it as simple as doing these manufacturing clusters? I think these are pretty complicated clusters of, and, you know, huge ecosystems they're trying to put together to work together. Um, So I think it's pretty phenomenal that these teams could come together. This is only the first three. I could envision, if he wants to do 45 more, I could envision doing more in solar or other, other clean tech sectors. Yep. So let's round out the show with a little candor. Mark Farron, a commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission, resigned suddenly last week in order to battle prostate cancer. In his farewell speech in front of the commission, Farron had some very strong words for utilities, the Tea Party, and California legislators. Quote, We are fortunate to have utilities in California that are orders of magnitude more enlightened than their brethren in the coal-loving states, although I suspect they would still dearly like to strangle rooftop solar if they could, said Farron. He continued, 
We are at an inflection point where the convergence of new technologies, changing economics, and I hope an added urgency to address our deteriorating climate will combine to create exciting new business opportunities and policy opportunities, unquote. So that is a great description of the utility disruption that we've been discussing on the podcast, and I encourage listeners to read the whole speech. We've got it posted at greentechmedia.com, so go check it out. But let's talk about the candor itself. Catherine, have you ever seen this kind of note or words from a departing commissioner or energy regulator? Um, We were talking before the show, and it's not completely dissimilar from Ron Binz's words when he was uh, not going to be able to move forward uh, as a, you know, as the chair of the FERC. Um, I mean, the man is 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 battling cancer. So, um, you know, that's really the first thing he has to think about. And I think he felt like he could talk about things. I think, um, you know, whether or not it's been said before, these are things that need to be raised. PUCs are not funded very well. I go to the NARUC meetings uh, usually a couple of times a year. It's really hard for these guys to afford to come to these meetings. Their staff, who end up writing a lot of the regulation, um, can only go if they're funded outside. They can't, of course, they can't take private funds. I mean, it's really hard to get these folks. They don't have good budgets. Some of them have, you know, it's like the regulators and one staff who has to support the entire, you know, system. Uh, so, you know, California has a, has a larger staff and they're really good. It's just that, you know, they're, they're really chronically underfunded. There is a bit of a revolving door, if you see, with regulators and in folks in the utility sector, you know, less so with regulators and uh, public advocates, folks who really, you know, look out for the consumer. So there, there is a need for some, I think, from his point of view, some clear firewalls between utilities, regulators, you know, at the, you know, who is responsible to whom? There Are the regulators responsible to the people? Are they responsible to the utilities? You know, where are those lines drawn? What stands out for you, Jigger? Well, it's it's what Catherine ended with there. I mean, I agree completely. The utilities, you know, as a public service commissioner, you don't really want a utility filing for bankruptcy on your watch. So I get the fact that they have this dual responsibility. But their main responsibility is to make sure that reliable electricity or cable or telephone or whatever it is that they're regulating gets to the people at the most affordable cost. And I do think that they um, – they're efforts are plagued by the politics of the situation. So when you think about Maryland, for instance, um, the top three donors to local political races in Maryland are Pepco, BGE, and Allegheny, the three utility companies there. And, you know, one of my former employees um, is on, uh, on the Maryland Public Service Commission, and she's amazing, but it's you know, it's brutal, you know, the the amount of pressure that is put onto these folks because of the property taxes that the utilities pay and the they're very generous to nonprofits and and you know other NGOs. They that they, they, they hold a lot of sway and put a lot of pressure on these service uh, public service commissioners. Mm. You know, this just adds to the conversation over time about the future of utilities and and, and when Farron says that you know, he questions whether the top managers at utilities have the ability or will to understand and control the complex organizations they oversee in the context of the changing utility business model. I think that's just one more example of how the conversation is changing in the utility space. I mean, we're just seeing it time and time again. More and more people are warning about the the long-term implications of what we're seeing in the energy markets. 
Yeah, and I think it's really hard for the regulators to try to come up with a totally new construct to say, okay, this is the solution. When everybody's data are different, everybody's everybody's model is is different, you know, whether you're coming at it from one point of view or another, and they're supposed to be the referee and suss out what's right and what's wrong and what the and at the same time to fi- try to figure out, you know, how do we allow them to be profitable? Um, and yet protect the consumer. And it's really hard. It's like changing the wheels on a moving car. No, I think that's right. Um, it, but you know, the one the one thing I would say, though, is it is important to note that while, you know, Mark is, you know, one of the, one of the brightest commissioners we've had in a long time, um, in many other states, I mean, these commissioners do not come to these jobs with specialty knowledge. And if you've got conflicting data from, self-serving industry types in the solar industry and the electric utility company you tend to side with the electric utility company for no other reason than you don't really know any better well some bold words from from mr farron and we all wish him well in his uh, battle with prostate cancer so a sad story but uh definitely some interesting words he left us with so let's wrap up the show and tell our listeners something they don't know uh, jigger shah what's your story this week so, you know, I'm obviously following this trade case uh, pretty carefully, and uh, the hearing was postponed because of the snowfall in uh, Washington, D.C., but it looks like the announcement's going to come this week from the Department of Commerce as to whether they're going to move forward um, on the case. An interesting perspective, though, that there's been a lot of controversy around whether um, the way in which SolarWorld uh, wrote the uh, complaint uh, whether SunPower would actually be, um, you know, allowed to manufacture through its normal supply chains, and right now most people think that SunPower is probably going to be able to keep their same supply chain, um, which is some wafers and from China processed in the Philippines and then and then brought to the United States. Um, but this is how complicated this is becoming. Is you know, Sun Edison I think may rule for itself a different way. Um, Suniva just uh, put in. Uh, comments as well because they are going to be firmly affected by these uh, tariffs uh, because they're manufacturing um, outside of 30 megawatts in Atlanta is actually done in China. So a lot of fallout and we're still not clear who's involved and who's not involved. Catherine Hamilton, tell us something we don't know. Uh, This is about the wonk of wonks, Ezra Klein, who um, worked for the Washington Post, still does, I think, at the moment, um, and was the author of the wonk blog, also a commenter on MSNBC. Um, And he's leaving the Washington Post. Uh, The wonk blog uh, will stay there and be run by other bloggers. But what Ezra Klein brought to print media, and then, of course, digital, with the Post going digital as well, is... Um, and under a really deep understanding of policy, he, he wrote a lot about climate, some about clean tech, but just really knew not just how to report a story based on calling people in the industry, but really understood how to analyze the, a policy. And this kind of begs the question, uh, Paul Krugman wore a, a pretty um, blasting op-ed in the New York Times, um, you know, they the, saying the Washington Post declined to keep Ezra um, and called them idiots. Um, and it sort of begs the question, and it's interesting because Green Tech Media does both, Stephen, right? You do you do both reporting and analysis. And I think it's sort of, you know, what happens with these major media outlets um, when they're trying, when some folks are trying to get analysis done um, in the middle of a sort of a, 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 a paper that's traditionally just done reporting. 
I will say one thing that gives me hope is that Brad Plummer is presumably still there, and he has been their lead environmental and climate reporter. He's done some really awesome stuff. He knows the energy industry pretty well. So, you know, if he's still there, I suspect that their their reporting on those issues will continue to be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. All right. Well, we're stuck in this cold snap here on the East Coast in the Midwest. And uh, and that means a lot more absurd reports from Fox News on how global warming doesn't exist. And it also means that uh, more people who respond to immediate weather changes don't actually think the planet's warming. So this uh, there's this new survey out from Yale and George Mason University, which track public perceptions of climate very closely. Um, they put out a survey a few times a year, and they found that 23% of Americans don't think that global warming is happening, and that's up from 16% last year, uh, which came during a warmer year, during a heat wave. And now here's the catch. So it's cold out there, and it's understandable that people respond to that. But even with such a cold fall and early winter in the U.S., and we're going to be going through this cold spell for the next week, 2013 was still the seventh warmest year on record globally, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And according to NASA, it was the fourth warmest year on record. Um, so this is, however you measure it, it's in the top 10. So this is the third, 37th consecutive year that temperatures were above the 20th century global average. So if you were born after 1976, you've never actually experienced a year when global temperatures were below the 20th century average. It's a pretty stunning statistic and really important for people to keep in mind that uh, immediate weather patterns do not equal climate and the changes to the climate over time. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's like it's amazing how many people think cold weather means that global warming isn't happening. All right, let's end the show there. Uh, for links to some of the stories we discussed, head on over to greentechmedia.com. There you can find links to SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes, so you can subscribe to the show if you are not already. We are so thankful for the listeners who've reviewed the show on iTunes. Those re- reviews really help attract more people, and, and our subscribers continue to grow each week. So seriously, thank you so much to those who have left, the, left those kind reviews and have sent us emails um, giving us their reviews of the show. If you want to reach out to us directly and give us criticisms, comments, and kudos, send an email my way. I can be reached at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com, and I'll be sure to pass them around to the rest of the gang. With that, we are off for another week while we scour the energy news. Catherine Hamilton, talk to you next week. Same place, same time. Absolutely. Can't wait. Jigger Shaw, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You too. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you all next week. Thank you.